My chance to go watch Made in China. We play ping pong ball Made in China. Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider, here today with Sam Sachs, currently a fellow at CSIS based uh, half in DC and New York. Sam, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. So full disclosure, Sam is another former colleague of me. Uh, she used to sit maybe 15 feet away. Uh, so glad to have you on. So uh, first question we asked everyone is, uh, what brought you to studying Chinese in China? I was in ninth grade and I'd been getting C's in my Spanish class. And I learned that my school offered Chinese language. And this was back in the 90s when not many schools were offering Chinese, so they were a bit ahead of their time. And I decided, you know what? I said switch languages. It turns out Chinese has much more simple grammar than Spanish. And for people that are grammatically challenged and good at memorizing characters, it turned out to be a better fit. Great. So what was your, uh, what was your first visit to China? I went to China in 2001, the summer after my freshman year in college, and I did a language immersion program which was one of the most miserable, hard experiences of my entire life, where it was two months living in Beijing in the summer, speaking only Chinese, you know, eight hours of Chinese instruction a day. It's a miracle that I went back after that, but I did. I got the bug. And uh, a number of years later, here we are talking uh, Chinese data policies. Yeah. So one of the, uh, one of the big trends uh, going around the world now from GDPR to uh, Facebook Analytica um, to even uh, the Chinese government is a newfound concern for uh, consumer data privacy issues. So um, I'm curious if you could just give us a little maybe global introduction of why this is an issue now and then turn to what data privacy means in China. Sure. So I think this past year, we have seen more discussion about data privacy in China in a way that was probably surprising to a lot of people. You know, there's this perception that there's that Chinese users don't value privacy the same way that we do here in the West. They do, but I think it's a slightly different concept. So it's worth talking about. A couple years ago, there was a scandal where a student um, essentially had their information online caught up in a scam, and they lost their tuition money where they were supposed to go to school. It led to death. It was a big scandal. People talk about it. And there's been a lot of concern about misappropriation and access to user data by criminal, by malicious actors in China. And so there's been, we've seen more and more incidents where users are saying, hey, private companies are doing things with my data that I don't want, that's causing harm. And there's been more concern about how their information is collected, who uses it, how it's processed, all of that. Now, I do think it's important, though, to distinguish what we're talking about. I think there's a lot of concern about how private companies are misappropriating user data, access to selling user data on the black market, for example. But there's not, we're not seeing the same amount of outcry over the government's access to data. I think there's not really an outlet where users can express concern over that. And there may not, frankly, even be as much worry about what the government's doing with it. So there's really sort of two tracks. And for this reason, I think of it more as data security rather than data privacy. After the Facebook incident where you know, we had the Cambridge Analytica scandal, Chinese users and the Chinese government paid a lot of attention to that. And there was a lot of commentary in the Chinese media about sort of what that meant. 
the CEO of Baidu actually came out and said, you know, this isn't really as much of an issue in the in China because Chinese users are would much prefer convenience and aren't as sensitive about what happens to their data. So after he said this, there was a huge outcry on Chinese social media. Um, and actually, there was a survey on Weibo and thousands of people participated in the survey and basically said, we don't agree with what the CEO of Baidu said. He's out of touch. Um, I think within a couple of days, it was like over 85 percent of users had voted to say, no, he's wrong. We actually do care about data privacy. But again, let's be really clear about what we're talking about. We're talking about rising concern about how private companies are using data, not the government. So separate concept. Yeah, a lot to a lot to unpack there. So basically, in the US and in other Western countries, there's pretty clear bright lines as to what the government or justice department has power over um, investigating you, which is why uh, the Snowden leaks were such a big deal, because it seemed that the NSA and all its technical might and power was uh, scooping up some uh, information around Americans, which they're you know very clearly not allowed to do. The Chinese government, on the other hand, has had no qualms about this sort of thing, basically since the founding of the you know party state. So it's interesting to, to, to see this kind of pocket of resistance towards uh, private companies having this, w- when the government is given such wide berth. And so I think some people have asked questions like, well, how do we make sense of the fact that China is rolling out new laws and regulations that limit the ability of Chinese companies to use and collect and process personal data, but at the same time, we're seeing the government take more aggressive steps to access personal information by users. How do we make sense? Is that a contradiction? And I don't think it's a contradiction at all. I think that, you know, there's, as Chinese internet companies get amass more user data, there's tremendous political and commercial power that comes from having access to that data. And if the government issues more restrictions on what companies are able to do with that data, it's another way that they can check the, grow, the growing influence of these powerful internet companies, number one. It also helps with social stability. You know, there's massive social stability risk associated with these kinds of scandals. You know, users finding their data on the, having their data leaked into the black market and sold, that's a social stability risk. So I think there's an interest in the government in issuing new rules for companies that makes it maybe not as contradictory as it might seem. Inside every um, thesis, there is an antithesis. We are talking about a, a Marxist um, uh, in a synthesis. We are talking about a Marxist country and society, right? So, so glad. Uh, thanks, Sam, for uh, for pointing that out there, uh, there for us. So, um, can you walk us through the the, the brief history of? Um, you know, what this new Biogen, what this new standard um, is, who came up with it, who's in charge? What's this What's this new law that was um, uh, put into force as of uh, this past May? I think we need to back up and start with China's cybersecurity law, which took effect in June 2017. And this is a really monumental moment in the build out of China's legal and regulatory framework for not just cyberspace, but the whole digital economy. You have more people participating in e-commerce, using apps for everything and they're affecting their daily life. And at the same time, the government sort of recognizes, wait a second, we have these emerging technologies in the digital space, but they've kind of gotten ahead of our ability to manage and control them. So let's build out this new framework where we have more tools 
to control this sort of new digital space, right? So the cybersecurity law, the centerpiece of this effort, and for the first time, it lays out in very high-level, broad terms, restrictions around what can happen with personal information. Um, and it is not a lot in there, but it's very vague language, and it basically says, you know, there needs to be consent before personal data is used and collected. But not a, not a lot of meat on that bone. So since that law came out, there have been a number of follow-on measures, guidelines, standards to kind of spell out, well, what does the government mean? How are they going to implement these very high-level principles? And one of the areas that has followed on from the cybersecurity law have been um, regulations and standards around personal data. And at the end of 2017, we saw something called the Personal Information Security Specification um, released. And for the first time, this was very granular rules around you know, things like consent, under what conditions can companies use, collect, share, transfer, store personal information and what that would look like. And I had the opportunity to have an exchange with the lead drafter of that standard to really understand, well, what was the intent behind this? What are some of the challenges around enforcing it? So first I should say, there is still a lot of uncertainty around this standard. And so we actually haven't seen a lot, we haven't seen much implementation or enforcement of it. I think because there's still a lot of debate about what this stuff means. So when the drafters wrote the standard, they looked at a lot of different international models. They looked at Europe, the general data protection regulations that just came, the GDPR that just took effect at the end of May. They looked at, um, in APEC, you have a privacy framework there. They looked at the US model, which is totally different. And they said, okay, how can we sort of pick and choose from these different models and find something that is gonna work for China? So let's stop there for one second. Could you could you uh, walk us through really quickly the, the the difference between what Europe and the U.S. are are doing with regards to these issues? On one end of the spectrum, you have the European model, which, as it stands, is the most comprehensive, strict legislation in the world around privacy and data security. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the United States, which has no national level privacy legislation. You have some bottom-up sector-specific rules, and you can argue there are pros and cons to having the top-down approach. But at the moment, you essentially have the Europe model, you have the U.S. model, which is not a national top-down piece of law, and then you have the China model, which sits somewhere in between. And you can argue about where on that spectrum it is. But the reality is, at the moment, China and Europe are the two models that really exist um, and the U.S. is sort of in reactive mode as multinationals are trying to figure out how to be compliant um, and operate globally, send data across borders, given the emergence of the Europe and the China model. So you ask people in China, you ask the drafters of this personal information security specification in China, well, what about the European model was appealing? And there was actually a lot there. So it would be surprising, I think, to people to hear that the Chinese standard took a lot of cues from Europe, specifically around consent. And what the drafters wanted to do is they wanted to give users in China more ownership and strengthen their control over how their data was used. So they looked to Europe as the standard for that. However, and this is where China's model is, is, is different from Europe, according to the drafters and what they wanted to do, 
Um, China, the Chinese government right now has a big push around developing artificial intelligence, AI. And AI relies on having access to massive data sets that can be used to train algorithms. So if you put too heavy restrictions around the ways that companies can use data, then that can potentially inhibit their ability to advance in AI. And so the drafters of this standard did not want the rules to go so far that they were going to undermine Chinese companies at this moment when there's so much emphasis on artificial intelligence and having China be a leader in that field. So they specifically wrote into the standard areas to give companies more space, more maneuverability, so they wouldn't be um, as restricted as, as companies operating in Europe would be. So let me give you an example. The definition of consent in the Chinese standard is supposed to be more lenient. So in Europe, in the European case, you only have explicit consent, which means users need to proactively, affirmatively opt in before they use services and their, their data is given over um, to these companies. But in the China case, the bar of consent is somewhat lower. So you don't you have some areas where for certain kinds of data, they require explicit consent. But in other areas, the bar is lower and the and there's they don't say it specifically, but you could make a case that there is implied or silent consent um, for other kinds of data that are deemed less sensitive. So that was the intention of the drafters when they looked at the European model and what we have in the United States. Um, so one of one of the interesting distinctions between the European and, and the Chinese new laws here is the enforcement mechanism. Uh, and, and what really struck out to me reading your, your articles about this is how it seems like no one's really thought this through or like who's responsible for actually like laying down the law and this sort of thing isn't quite clear. So could you tell listeners what's going on there and, and, and how you think this sort of thing is going to play out? This is why the intent of the drafters is not the whole story when we think about how this standard is actually going to, to have an effect in practice, because there is no one entity in China that is in, that has a mandate over enforcement on data issues. There's no data protection authority in China. You actually have multiple different stakeholders in the political system in China that have very different interests when it comes to issues like data and AI and development of commercial internet companies, of privacy, right? So I think in practice, you're gonna, it's gonna be very unclear how these rules are applied to specific companies. So let me give you an example. Right as, as the cybersecurity law was being drafted, you had stakeholders that had much more of a national security agenda involved. So like the Ministry of Public Security, clear domestic security mandate. But you also have the Cyberspace Administration of China, the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, these are entities that are also working with Chinese companies and have a clear mandate to have Chinese internet companies, Chinese ICT companies become commercially viable, even in places outside of China, to be leaders in emerging fields like AI. And so if you hamstring them with too many security requirements, that's going to get in the way of their ability to do that. So it's unclear who actually has the mandate over enforcing these kinds of standards. And as a result, we have not seen enforcement action. And it's unclear what we don't even know if the standard is mandatory or if it's just recommended that companies do it. So, so I think now is a good time to, to back up and explain what exactly a standard is in the Chinese context. 
Great question. There are a lot of different kinds of standards globally. Standards can be technical specifications. They can be guidelines for how certain types of equipment or network services are built. They also can be policy or legal standards. And in the China case, inside the Chinese system, standards are often used as a form of regulation. So the government will issue a law with very high level principles like we saw in the cybersecurity law but they're vague. And after the law is released, you'll have follow-on standards that will come out that spell out specifically how this is meant to be implemented. So we've seen dozens and dozens of different standards related to cybersecurity come out after the cybersecurity law. And I'm actually working on a separate project now, tracking all of the different cybersecurity related standards that have come out and trying to understand you know, what kind of effect they're having. So I would put this this one in the category of policy standard, but it might even be less than a policy standard because it's called a specification. It's not called a standard. So again, unclear, is this mandatory or just recommends it? So so another part coming back to your, your former question where, um, you know, I sort of understand on the one hand, the, the parts of the Chinese bureaucracy that uh, want to help the consumers. But uh, it, it, it's really interesting to me because it seems like, you know, the equivalent of like the Consumer Protection Bureau or like the or like the, you know, private privacy lobby is actually like the folks who are worried about public protests in the government and domestic security. Is that is that the case here? Is am I understanding that right of who's of who's pulling on the other side? You know, I'm not entirely sure from an organizational standpoint, if there's a lobby around it, I think that this a lot of this has been kind of a ground up demand from the users themselves. So more of a sort of grassroots demand for it rather than having, you know, a lobby or an organization behind it. But I do think that there are certain entities in the government that have used that to their advantage where it's aligned with certain government interests. Sure. And let's be clear, grassroots does not mean that there is, you know, an NGO screaming out for privacy, um, having having meetings and putting pressure on this is this is much more of a, the government has a sense for something and then is trying to, you know, preemptively yeah. address a need that that may blow up in the future. Exactly. And these these issues are being debated in a lot of different forums right now. So, for example, like there was recently a mobile internet forum in, in Beijing and you had academics, policymakers both from China and also foreign experts come in and debate some of these issues. And there was a whole session around, you know, what is the role of data protection given the rise of technologies like AI? So you have like, you know, pretty senior folks from the private sector and government kind of actively debating these issues right now. And so leading scholars in China, for example, talking about the fact that questions around who owns your data is really problematic right now. And how do we sort of reconcile the demands from users for more protection over their information with the need to develop new industries like AI. So they're talking about this stuff, maybe in ways that are actually kind of similar to debates that we're having here, you know, in the United States. I think people might be surprised to learn that. Uh, so, so bringing the two countries together with, um, you know, today's news around Facebook integration with Huawei and, and co. So could you walk us through this and, um, uh, the, the implications for, for data privacy and data and data policy, both in, both in China and in the U.S.? So the New York Times just broke the story that Facebook had agreements with 
I think, four Chinese companies that allowed them to access um, user information that was similar to what they offered BlackBerry. So this means that they could retrieve information from device users, their own information, as well as all of their friends, like work and education history, relationship status, you know, and likes. Um, so this has caused a lot of concern because the idea here is that this would provide sort of exponential access to users, um, and that information would be essentially a sort of treasure trove of information from an intelligence collection standpoint, looking at the Chinese government. You know, one of the questions I've had around this is, you know, understanding that there are you know, major privacy implications to that. Let's think about, let's take like Huawei, for example. So one of the Chinese companies involved is Huawei, and there is Huawei hysteria here in the U.S., and um, you know, people are always talking about oh, the relationship between Huawei and the PLA and the Chinese government, right? I get that. There have been a lot of national security concerns around Huawei. But let's just take a step back for a moment and think about, you know, what is the demographic in the U.S., for example, that actually has a Huawei phone? Why would they be an intelligence collection target of the Chinese government? You know, I think that that demographic is actually somewhat small in the U.S. So, you know, Huawei phones are considered like a much more a cheaper option than an iPhone here in the United States. Right. So I don't think that let's just focusing on the Huawei piece of that story, setting aside the broader kind of questions around privacy and user control over their data. I'm less concerned that the Chinese government is going to take Facebook information collected from someone using a Huawei device here in the U.S. and use that for sort of strategic purposes. Uh, I just think that that's not how it works. But I think it is important to think about, you know, the debates that are happening around Facebook globally are also happening in China and their ramifications as China's building out their own data protection regime, looking at what's happening globally with Facebook, with debates in the United States and with Europe. We have to understand these conversations are not happening in isolation, right? Yeah, I mean, it'll it'll be interesting to see whether as this becomes a much more salient thing for businesses, whether they'll be sort of concerned with the, you know, on the one hand, yes, there's there's this Biaojin, but but there's still the carte blanche that the Chinese government has to ask companies for data. And I wonder, as Chinese companies spend more and more time going abroad, particularly doing more consumer facing stuff, what sort of tensions like this Huawei leak will arise? Yeah, that's a, I think that's a fundamental tension we need to recognize, right? You have, as part of Xi Jinping's vision for cyberspace and, the di and digital China, there's a mandate to create big and strong Chinese internet companies that are going to go out, go into Southeast Asia, go into Europe, and capture market share outside of China's closed ecosystem. So if they're perceived as being sort of tools of a Beijing surveillance state where they're giving all their data to the Chinese government, how are they going to actually go out and you know, be compliant with GDPR, capture consumers that are not just Chinese tourists operating in those markets outside of China? That's a real tension. So in the days leading up to GDPR, I heard from friends in China that you know, work in this industry that there was a lot of concern in China over, wait, what does this mean? What is the, you know, do I, do I, do I need to get consent on our privacy policy from all users? And I think particularly in places like Southeast Asia, they're, 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 that's a market where Chinese internet companies are looking to expand pretty aggressively. 
And you also have cybersecurity and data laws coming on the books in places like Vietnam um, and Indonesia. And the way that data rules are set up in those markets is also a top concern for Chinese companies as they're looking to expand their operations globally. We shall see. Uh, and also to your earlier point about the, the relative inefficacy of using Huawei to spy on folks. I mean, you know, the Chinese government has every SF-86. I'm sure they're not lacking for, for ways to, um, uh, to, to snoop around other countries. It does, it does seem sort of interesting that, that, uh, Folks would be so concerned about this, but you know, if I if I'm Marco Rubio, then sure, why not? You know, here's another uh, yeah, here's another hammer to bring to the table. And you know, in in China, we one of the criticisms that that we in the U.S. have had of China for a long time is that we that chi- the Chinese government conflates economic and national security, and they use their cybersecurity laws as a market act as a way to block market access and say, oh, you know, your company, you know, in the your this this multinational is not quote unquote secure and controllable. Anquan Kokong is the phrase. So that phrase secure and controllable has been used to block foreign companies from access to the Chinese market, and we've pushed back on that heavily. And I think now we're starting to see the mirror of that in the United States when we think of with, with Chinese companies coming here and the blurring of national security and economic lines. So if you're Donald Trump or Marco Rubio and you want to come up with the, the nice phrase that, that sounds a little better than secure and controllable, what would your, um, uh, what would your tagline be to, to keep the, the Huawei's of the world out? How would you sell this? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, isn't it just American first? Yeah, I, I guess. But, you know, I mean, I think there's I think there's uh, what was I getting at? I mean, I think you're getting that uh, like kind of getting at the crux of this, which is, you know, look, there there are there are real national security and commercial implications to having companies like Huawei and ZTE in our supply chain here in the U.S. And what do we do about that? And how do we balance, you know, the commercial interests, the innovate, the need for innovation in these new areas with national security? And I think we're kind of grappling with that here in the same way that, that, that China is. And on that ambiguous note, uh, we, we will see how all of this plays out. I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, understanding just what data privacy turns out to be in China, because there's there's still seems to be a ton up in the air. And and whatever bureau, whatever the you know bureaucratic infighting and, you know, however good the Alibaba government relations folks are and in, in, in making sure that this isn't necessarily too onerous for them. But you know, at the same time, there is going to be another scandal that breaks in China around these sorts of things because there's just too much data and there are too many incentives for people to um, uh, do illicit stuff with that out there. So, you know, when when the next flashpoint happens, it'll be really interesting um, to what extent the government feels comfortable in punishing companies for, for not really safeguarding this or getting the, the right sort of sign offs from their from their users. I will say, I think we're at a tipping point now, just a final comment, where you have governments around the world grappling with these immense challenges around what does it mean to send data across borders? How do you protect privacy? How do you balance this with the need for innovation? And right now, we're seeing the emergence of different models for this. As I said, GDPR just took effect. You know, the na- whether the U.S. needs to have national privacy legislation is back on the agenda. China's security, uh, personal information security specification just took effect amid a lot of uncertainty and debate. You have more countries signing on to the APEC CBPR privacy system. So there's a potential for fragmentation. How are multinationals going to operate in this fragmented environment? 
Are there pathways for convergence, for interoperability between these different systems as we sort of grapple with the new questions around privacy? Or is this going to be a very fragmented system? And that's what we're, that's what we need to watch. We shall see. Sam, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.